my when I do my stand up, like I'll send you a video as well. It's more like a, yeah, I beat it, like I got through it, but it was like this, you know, and doctors saying this to me and my mother's reaction to me hair and what it's like when you know you go to, into early onset menopause and and then I have a joke song about it and all this kind of stuff and. Welcome to the Social Fabric Podcast with me, Andreas Brindori, and this week my guest is Ellen O'Reilly. Ellen is an incredible musician, comedian, and regular contributor to music magazines. Please subscribe, share, and review. It's the only way podcasts like this have a chance to survive. The music has been shortened for rights reason. The show is also broadcast weekly on Near FM 90.3. For more information, please visit socialfabric.ie. The title tune is Alice by Lucky Bones. Can I call you up, oh Alice, on a Friday night? We could reminisce on old days and we could talk a while. Sit and talk a I'm gonna start the recording because I always like the bits before the, the bit. <laughs> so sorry, you were you're in London at the moment. I'm in London at the moment. I'm working on a, on a musical theatre show called Operation Mincemeat, all about World War Two. It's a comedy musical, wow. and uh, I've been working on it on and off since 2019. You know, I I kind of come back to London and I do a run for a few months, and then I come back to Ireland and do whatever weird stuff I do there. <laughs> So. Brilliant. Well, look, Ellen, let's start straight away because I have loads of things I want to hear about for, about you. And uh, so just as a preamble to it all, uh, I'm speaking with Ellen O'Reilly. Um, Ellen and, uh, and I know each other forever. No, we don't. We have met once at, uh, at, a, at a friend's party, uh, Mark Geary, which was also a guest uh, on this podcast. And uh, just chatting to Ellen briefly, I just thought, She's a very interesting person. I want to know more about. So the next thing, we went into the house for a bit of food, and uh, there were a few guitars, and, and Ellen decided to grab one of them and uh, did an amazing rendition of a particular song. That, that Now, the name escapes me, but just basically everybody shut up and just listened, and it was a wonderful uh, a wonderful rendition of whatever songs you did. I can't remember if it was Eurythmics or... or uh, it, um, Grace, the Rolling Oh, like you did a, a few, like a prayer. Yeah. That's the one. So you kind of showed us all up with this wonderful rendition of like a prayer. And so a couple of minutes before you told me you're playing the bass, you're a comedian. So that's before, before we go on. Who are you, Ellen? Where, like you told me you're in London, but let's go back a little bit. Who are you? Where, where did you grow up? Tell me a little bit more about you before we get into the bits. Okay, right. Um, there's a lot. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, born and raised in Trotta, County Loud. Uh, um, yeah, went to school in Green Hills. It's sort of crack. I was kind of an, a weird kind of kid, I guess. I was always, like, in my own little fantasy world. You know, I used to kind of lose myself in, in Tolkien and and what was considered weird music, I guess. But, like, I, I think I was a child of the 70s, even though I was in the 80s kind of thing. Um, my dad was a musician. And a very funny man. He was brilliant. His name was Patrick O'Reilly, and uh, he was a great piano player. Couldn't sing at all, like at all. But like, it was funny when he tried it. Um, uh, played a bit of guitar, bit of bass, all this kind of crack. Brother played guitar, all this kind of crack. So I grew up in a very musical household. 
and uh, a funny household because dad was hilarious and then um and then i kind of went down a wrong road uh, with my life i kind of like you know when you're really young and you get your first well you don't know what it's like to get your first boyfriend and you're like oh this is it now i'm never going to get a boyfriend again because i can't get a boyfriend again this is it like i have to i have to this i have to settle now and uh do whatever he says kind of thing i just i didn't have an awful lot of self-confidence as a young as a teenager you know so um i i wanted to be a professional musician my i got into playing bass uh much to my dad's delight because i went through like every other instrument that was around in the house and every other whim of an instrument I wanted like I was like right okay I'll get you an accordion but like you have to play it and I'll play it for a few weeks and then it'll be gone and this kind of went with different instruments like a year of violin went through a drum phase like brass everything and then when I was 16 I started kind of getting into guitar and my brother was turning me on to like Led Zeppelin and Hendrix and all that kind of stuff and uh, then I started kind of listening more and more to the, what the bass player was doing and I kind of heard a lemon song by Led Zeppelin and I heard John Paul Jones play and I was like, that sounds really cool. I like I like how that sounds. And it kind of made me feel, you know, it, bass moves, you know, to dance and stuff. So I kind of got I got into bass then and I kind of became obsessed with it. And um, I remember telling my dad and uh, and I thought like he was going to roll his eyes and say no now after all the instruments I've been through. And he just goes, he actually turned around, he was fixing something at the table and uh, he turned around and he goes, bass good you'll never be out of work <laughs> and now I'm a professional bass player so um he was right and uh yeah he, he so he he marched me down to the sound shop music shop in Drada and he put 50 quid on a bass of my choosing like a cheap one he wasn't going to spend fortune on a fender for me like it was a fender copy thing and um and then I but because he wanted me to be real serious about it I had to like spend my pocket money on it every week so I'd go down every week and throw a load of me pocket money on this bass, it was called a legend, and a big black and white, huge thing. And eventually I got it, and I was just so excited. I just, I remember putting it on the bed and just staring at it for, for a few days, like, and I wouldn't let anyone touch it, like, or anything, you know? And then, uh, yeah, then I just kind of taught myself, like, I was completely self-taught until um, I eventually made the move to London 11 years ago now. Um, but yeah, I was completely self-taught. Like, I just, I, I learned from just listening to stuff and watching videos and, going down and seeing other bands play like back then there was a great music scene in Drada it's starting to come back again now but there was a brilliant scene when I was growing up like and you could go see any kind of band and and then when I was 17 I got my first gig in a in in a band with a load of guys in their 40s which to me was like ancient you know and uh just like a load of guys it was called a big ass band and it was all uh soul and reggae and ska and old rock and billy like completely different to the music I was exposed to like and that and, and I had to like take solos and stuff and that developed me further as a musician and then I just played with anyone and everyone and I'd be in 10 bands at any one time and all that kind of stuff and nothing's really changed except I don't really say I'm in any one band now I'm just kind of in everything you know unless I'm stuck working on a show or on a tour then I'm, then I'm stuck then I'm on that thing but otherwise I'm just you know strings for hire kind of person you know and then uh so after that, uh, went down the wrong road. Uh, the guy I was going out with at the time when I was very young was like, he was a musician, so he was a guitarist. And he was like, well, well, I'm the musician. You can't be a musician, you know? And uh, so I kind of was like, well, what else can I do? So art, oh no, that's still, that's not, that's still kind of like being a musician. You can't do that. Like, 
I mean, when I if I could go back in time and slap myself, I would, you know. But you know, we live and learn. And um, so I was like, well, I was really good at biology, you know. So I went to do this like um, ecology course in, in Galway, but he was like, oh no, we can't go to Galway. But when all I really wanted to do was go to London because I, I was obsessed with London, right? Because all my favorite bands had a connection to London, like Queen, Led Zeppelin, like and, and everyone. And it was just something about the music scene of, of, of London and the session scene and reading about the Stones and the Pistols and, and, and all of what it was like in the 70s and everything in, in London, you know? So in the 60s, session scene, then all the people who were playing for Donovan and all this, like, including Chuck Paul Jones and Led Zeppelin, there you go. But I, so I was obsessed with it and I was always reading books about it and every, all of my favourite bands had a connection. So my dream was to go there. And at the time, now there's BIM in Dublin, but back then there was no like contemporary music school to study in Ireland. You know, there was like New Park to study jazz. And I was like, God, jazz, like, really not arsed with that. Like, uh, so didn't want to do that. So um, I I found out, I used to read these magazines called uh, Bassist Magazine. And, and that became Bass Guitar Magazine. Anyway, and they were always advertising all these music schools. And there was one in particular called the ICMP. Back then it was called Bass Tech. And it was all like, uh, you know, you can go and learn and play guitar, play bass, whatever, all this kind of stuff. So I was like, I want to do that. And that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to move to London. Before I met this guy, I wanted to move to London, study in London and go to this college and become a session bassist, you know, which I eventually did become. But I went the long way around and um, he was having none of it and all this kind of stuff. But like all my favourite bands had a connection there and like Neil Murray from Whitesnake taught there. And, and he, he's now a friend of mine. It's so weird. Like how life works out, you know. Um, but uh, but anyway, I didn't go in the end, but it was still a dream. And I kept obsessively collecting these magazines. I mean, towers of these magazines, you know. Now, eventually, seven years later, I, I end up working in labs, working as a lab technician and a chemist, like not even biology, like stuff I didn't care about and wasn't interested in. And it was this claustrophobic, you know, nine to five, even though sometimes it was shift work. It was just so very claustrophobic for me. Like I'm a very, I'm a typical Gemini. Like I like to be free and I like to not know what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. I kind of like, sometimes uncertainty is a scary thing, but when the world is open, you know, anything can happen. Like, and I kind of like that. Like, I mean, I know, like I'm working on a musical theater show at the minute, but when that ends, I know what's happening the following month, but then I don't know what's happening. And it's kind of nice. It's kind of exciting. I don't know what, what what's around the corner, and that and I like that. I don't like stuff to be become stagnant and boring. And lab working in a lab and working in a kind of nine to five, it just felt like a prison to me, you know. Because I I love to perform. I love to be on stage, and it just was just uh, again against my nature completely. So worked in labs for like seven odd years. Broke up with the ex. Kept working in labs, and kind of like. And I was depressed. I was like completely depressed, and I hated it. I used to I used to go in and feel dread, you know. And then I was living for the weekends because I would gig in week in bands at the weekends, and 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 I started to kind of do all right in the like obviously I was doing function work and all that crack, like we all have to. But I was also getting in there with artists and you know playing big festivals with different up and coming artists in Ireland and and working on TV shows like The Late Late and Class Act and Eurostar and all these different things, and and uh. So it was starting to happen, you know, and um, and then the, the the big crash of like 2008 happened, and we were all told in that. But I still kind of was afraid to leave the lab. I was afraid to make the leap, you know, 
And I remember they told us in the lab, right, in a year's time, we're, we're cutting, we're closing this lab, you know, uh, but we're going to offer you a job in Holland working in a lab. And I was like, no, straight away. I was like, listen to your heart, you know what I mean? Not to sound like an 80s pop song, but like, I was just like, no way, I'm, that's not happening. I, I, this is like a, I totally believe in the universe. Like it, it has has a plan for you and it knows, it, it wants you to, to follow your dream, you know? So I was like, I'm not going to listen to it now. I'm not going to like listen to someone else. And, 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 you know, because people kept coming up to me and saying, oh, there's a new lab opening up with the dock. You can go work there. And there's loads of labs in Dublin. And, and I was going to the odd interview going, I, I'm, I don't even give a shit about this. Like, and I remember waiting to go into an interview and they put, I, I, and the girls in the lab were on their lunch break and I was end up having to crack with them and telling jokes with them and all that. And that was another part of me that was afraid to come out, like the comedian part, like, you know what I mean? And it's all this, like, fear that we like give into sometimes and it's just like it, it, life's too bloody short for that shit like you know uh so i just was like i'm going to swear is that okay that's okay i want to stop you for a second here because it's just a lot there that i want to ask you but there's one thing you said earlier on and you spoke very fondly of your dad and uh, and i love that bit where he just decided there you go 50 quid off you go you want to follow your dream do a bit of work towards that dream but go for it, right? And it's a lovely thing from a parent. You know, not not all of us have that emotional intelligence, if you want, to, to see what our kids want. Um, but at the same time, you were going through that, as you uh, as you described it, that uh, you know, low self esteem, low self confidence because because of the first boyfriend, because of all the things teenage teenagers go through. Tell me a bit more about that because that's that's that, that's the first crossroad that you kind of went through. As in, I can really deal with this. You know, this is. I watched this amazing documentary called "Count Me In," all about drummers on Netflix. It's an amazing documentary, and there's all all the famous drummers and so on. But there's one particular girl, and unfortunately, I can't remember her name. But she she talks about that being a drummer, being a, the female drummer, how just change everything for her. It says I, you know. I am I am a really good drummer. She ended up playing with uh, uh, with one of her favorite band because the drummer got got injured and she was brought in as the replacement. So her dream came through. But that moment when she went, okay, this is it. This is me. I can I can do this. So just tell me a little bit more about that bitch, that that moment when when you got that bass and how it helped you with the self confidence and self esteem. Yeah, that moment. Um... Well, that was down to my dad, really. Like, uh, like he, he was, he was kind of. A, you see, my mom is a very much like she's very old, kind of fashion, and she's kind of the person who she gets it now. But back then, she didn't get it at all. She was like, "Well, why can't you be like all the other girls? You know, why can't you? You know, why don't you be one of those nice girls who works down the farm system, wears nice dresses, or be an air hostess, or or all this stuff? Don't be this like." rocker who wants to play guitars and all this crack whereas my my like my brother delighted in it but my dad was like just any weird whim I had like even like with the science as well like the biological stuff I was into like and all that kind of anything he, he just would feed any interest and I think I don't I think I was very lucky with that like he never he never ever ever now whereby I, w- I would get from my mom you you know not in it like you can't do that but in a way of saying you can't do that you're a girl my dad would never do that like ever he never ever said anything my gender was never a, a factor in it you know what i mean it was a factor of other people because i remember like when i got that first 
those first few gigs, they just assumed I couldn't play, you know, and then I proved them wrong, you know, and if anything, that adds more fire to it, like, because you have to kind of, you walk into a room, you have to prove yourself, you know what I mean, you prove that you're not, you're not there to be a novelty, you know, you're there, you're, you're there to show that you are a good musician, you're a good player, you know, you're not fitting the quota of the girl musician or what, whatever it is, like, yeah. you know, like, like, okay. The, look, just want to ask you before I, I, I'll come back to the story after you decide not to go to Holland, but I just want to ask you, uh, as, a, as you know, I, I always ask my guests for a couple of songs, you know, that meant something. You mentioned a few bands there. If you were to pick a song now, what, what song would that be and why? I would pick one of the songs is, it's a Queen song, but it's not like a very well-known one. It's called The White Queen As It Began. It's from their second ever studio album. And uh, but in particular, the live version from Queen Live at the Rainbow 1975. Uh, it's amazing. It's a Brian May written song, but it's a song that's all it's kind of like because, as I said, when I was a kid, I used to when I was a little kid, I used to disappear into fairy tale land, you know, that was like weird. I just had this mad imagination, you know, and uh, they were like a fairy tale band. And in their first few albums, certainly the second album, which is imaginatively called Queen 2. Right, is um is like a fairy tale prog album. They, they started out being a prog prog band, really. So this is called the White Queen as it began, and it's about this this prince or whatever he's pauper or whatever he is, and he falls in love with this this queen, and but he has to go off and do all these battles in this in this fairy land. There's ogre battles. There's a guy who kills fairies for a living called the Fairy Feller, and then there's like the Black Queen, and she's the evil one, and the the, the the fight between good and evil. It's just a beautiful, beautiful song, but it's magic, just kind of transcendent. So, yeah. Okay, I interrupted you when you were uh, kind of offered that option, go and work in Holland and stay in the lab, or, and thus you choose the or. What happened? How how did it work right, out? Well, well, I said no to that. I said no to every other lab option, and I was like, I'm just going to gig. I'm just going to gig. I'm going to save for a year, because I was single again. I've no, no one's holding me back. The only person holding me back is me. And now the universe is saying, right, well, we're going to make you redundant. Here's a nice redundancy package, gig for a year, save up a bit more, and then feck off to London. And that's exactly what I did. And actually, another cool twist of amazing fate is um, I was reading this magazine I mentioned, Bass Guitar Magazine, and there was an advertisement in it saying, oh, for the Institute of Contemporary Music Performance, the ICMP, this college I was dreaming of, um, where loads of big bands went, Skunk and Nancy, Reef, all these kind of bands, um, where we have scholarships run by base, by music man bases, right? So if you win the scholarship, you get to study on the higher diploma course, which was a one year course before the degree, completely for free. And you get like a free music man guitar, which I still have. And, uh, and you also get to write a column in Bass Guitar Magazine. It was like all my dreams in one, right? And I was afraid to go for it. But my sister said, you literally have nothing to lose, like go for it. So I had to write this essay, I had to record um, like a bass 
solo so I used a loop pedal and I built up this kind of like little orchestration of bass guitar stuff Um, wrote the essay all this kind of stuff said all about the things that I'd done to that point which was quite cool things it was, like I was playing Oxygen and Isle of Wight and various different artists and stuff and um, so that all kind of stood to me in the TV work and all that and then uh, I and then I got into the final I went to London nobody could come with me at the time so I just went on my own it was the first time I was ever in London and I just me and my bass on my in the hold arrived in London navigating the tube just didn't know what was going on got there and everyone else had like their parents with them and and I don't know why no nobody could come with me at the time I don't know why but anyway I went on my own and um I did the final and I won <laughs> I was the first woman to win it they were doing the scholarship by 10 by, for 10 years at that point and I was the first female winner of the music band scholarship to study on the higher diploma at the, at the at the ICMP college and yeah and I wow. wrote my piece I got my bass from from there I, I got endorsed by music band basses then and from that I got to uh, do like demo work so at these big guitar fairs you see people playing on, on little podiums and stuff and it's usually like a famous player like this guy plays for Lenny Kravitz and he's over there or, or whatever you know uh, but I got to do it as a as the scholarship winner for Music Man. So I was playing on the Music Man podium and all these, all my heroes, all my favourite bass players, all these people were just walking around and John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin, who I'd been, who inspired me to pick up the bass in the first place, stood and watched me play at one point. I got I got that, that bass that Music Man gave me. I got it signed by John Paul Jones. I have it back in oh. Ireland. Like just like stuff I was fantasising about. <sighs> 10 years plus previously was all happening. I got to write a column for Bass Guitar Magazine. I did that for a year. Once I wrote that column, the editor, Joel McIver, big shout out to Joel, he said, I love the way you write. Um, would you like to be a writer at Bass Guitar Magazine? Wow. So now I write for that magazine. It's since become Bass Player Magazine, which is published in America, UK and EU. So my articles are now published worldwide. Um, and sometimes they get published in other magazines so the bassist in holland or guitar world online and metal hammer kerrang like my articles are circulating all over the world now i've done i've done um cover interviews now i've interviewed john mine of dream tear i've wanted i've interviewed geddy lee one of my favorite bass players of all time of rush i've interviewed les claypool of primus one of my favorite bass players of all time Victor Wooden, they were all cover stories. I think I've done other cover stories, but I can't think of them right now. Wow. And, and countless other interviews. And through then, I've, I've got to like meet most of my heroes. And, and now one of my favourite bass players of all time, Guy Pratt, who plays for Pink Floyd. He actually was a bass player of Like a Prayer, Madonna, um, Tina Turner, Crosby Stills and Nash, uh, Coverdale Page. Like, like the list is endless with Guy Pratt. He's now a mate of mine. It's, it's mental. He's come to see the show I'm working in, like, like he loves it. And, and wow. it's, you know, he's on tour with Nick Mason at the minute. It's just, it's, 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 it's amazing that I, I just, I just took, the, I let, I just ignored the fear and kind of did it anyway. And it all worked out. Like it's, it's, it's an amazing leap of faith that you have to do it. Like life's just too short, you know? So that all happened and now I write for Bass Player Magazine and I'm now I've moved to Sandberg Guitars now so I'm endorsed by Sandberg and and various other companies and I get to work with cool artists I played with Kate Nash there not so long ago at a big festival war 20,000 people like 
it's 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 such a mad life yeah but <laughs> fantastic amazing it is a mad life but you just skipped through very quickly there when you were saying oh i was doing this bass magazine and i was playing at oxygen i was playing at the isle of white you know you went really through like you really quickly as if you say you know i was having a sandwich and, and, a, and a can of coke now it's not easy to be playing <laughs> the oxygen and, and the isle of white and and all i can hear what you're saying i mean i've seen you play the guitar and as i say it was it was quite it's quite amazing how you just turned the room into you know, a, a place of uh, a worship. We were all just listening to you, and and there was a, some amazing music, musician that night, including Mark and everybody else who was there. But there, there was passion, and there was uh, there was more than just strumming the guitar, right? So there's an awful lot of work going into what you've done to date. I mean, I don't know how you practice. What would you say when you started? What how, how often? Were you, how many hours a day were you sitting there with your bass bass guitar and learning from scratch what was it like because there's a lot of crafting grafting before you get to what you to do what you do or how you do it or am i wrong well yeah uh, <laughs> i should say that i i practice scales crazily and i practice material crazily i didn't do that until i went to the institute like and 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 i'm still not great at that now but i had to do it when i was studying at the institute i, I did a degree in music performance and i learned how to read and my theory and and the scales and all that stuff and I but that I did all that through college but mostly it's I don't know I don't I think there's now this people are gonna hate me for saying this like but I I've I've noticed a difference like I think it's it's nature over or nurture or it's something like that I think I think it's something that's in you and I think it's something that's in a lot of people in Ireland I think like musicality is a it's kind of like a second nature to us mm. I think there's something in that. I wouldn't say, like, yeah, I sat down with books and I went through guitar chords and all that, but I didn't do it in, like, a, like a scientific way. I did it in, like, I want to know this song because I love this song, so I'm just going to figure out how to do that so I can sing this song. You know, it wasn't like I'm going to stoically do that. And and same with bass. Like, bass, it was more, like, I was obsessed with it, but not in a really, like, super nerdy way. It was kind of more... I think I'm, I'm, I'm more, there's, there's two kinds of players I find, two kinds of professional players and two kind of music students. And one kind is one that's a bit more like creative or it's something that's in them. It's, it's like a, it, it comes more natural or something. And then the other kind is, is a grafting kind. One that like learns the dots and learns to, and it's more analytical in it. I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm the, I'm the more, I guess not to sound Ponzi, but natural. I like I play. I can play by ear. I can. Mm. Someone's playing something. I can figure it out. Like when, like in the in Mark's house, he was like, "How can how can you harmonize like that?" And I was like, "Cause I can hear it in my head, and I just do it. It's it's yeah. it's just something yeah, yeah. that's in me, I guess." Yeah, I get you. I want to ask you a thing about being the bass player, right? So you play with so many ama amazing artists already, and the future is. You know, limited. You're going to be playing with some amazing artists. You're going to carry on doing that, and as well as doing musicals, which I'm sure is a more kind of, you know, work you need to do, and and, and it's fine you, you do. But what's it like to be on stage? You mentioned a couple of festivals with an artist. I go and see the artist. I haven't got a clue about Ellen in the background. I, you know, what is it like to be? You're you're there. You're 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 the 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 rhythm that you know the 
the important parts of the music. You and the drummer are keeping the whole thing going. But I'm coming there to see Lenny Kravitz, whoever it is. But what's it like just to be there and knowing that, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but knowing that I don't need, most people wouldn't know who you are. Oh, am I correct to say that? Yeah. As a um, session musician. Yeah. Session musicians, other bass players know who I am. <laughs> okay, okay, that's great. But like, um, which is good because like we give each other work and all that kind of crack. But uh, but that I I I was always cool with that. Now okay. something's changing in my life now. Um, I was always cool with that before. I always wanted to be a session bassist. I always wanted to be playing with the artist and 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 that kind of crack. I never wanted to be. You know, when you learn an instrument, people assume you want to be a rock star. But I never wanted to be mm. that. But so, but when it comes to comedy, I, I do want to be that because yeah. it's my voice, yeah. and it's it's a weird juxtaposition I have. But I love I love the fact that I get to play with different people, and it's like a it's like a, 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 so much variety in my life like that. I can go and do a West End musical. I can go and play with an artist. I can go off on tour with. John Murray or whoever, or, or, you know, and or I can go and do a function or I can run my own little cover band or I can do my own original music, which is now something I'm taking more seriously now. Um, me and the love of my life, who you met, Ross, we, we have our own original band called Disco Volante. So we're trying to get that on the go when I'm the lead singer and bass player. And when it comes to that, to that, I do want it to do well, but not in a like, look at me in a rock star way, just like, just have people in the crowd who love the music, I guess. I think it's when you write your own music, it's such a personal thing and it's such a scary thing that I wanted to be a session player because I didn't want to do that because it's yeah. it's such a personal thing, which is a weird juxtaposition because when I do stand-up comedy, I'm talking about my life like, and I'm talking about, I'm sure we'll get to it, um, how four years ago I had cancer. So yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> tell, tell. I'm gonna ask you about that in a second. Um, well, that, that's great because it goes with uh, what you were saying about. Uh, I'm a Gemini as well. I never thought it that way, but I'm very much like you. I love, I love the unknown. I love to know that there's there's possibilities out there. And so I guess even that's being a session musician, being playing with different, you know, it's just new all the time. It's wonderful that way. It's great. And, and Rossi is a lovely guy. Um, and I'm delighted to hear it's a love of, a love of your life. Uh, and I, I was looking, looking forward to hear about Disco Volante. And tell me about the second song. What, what, what song comes to mind? What song did you write down that you would like to tell me about? Okay. The next song is by the band Rush from Canada. Um, uh, and the song is called, it's not a very well-known song again, and it's called The Pass. And it's basically, it's it's just such a profound song because, like, I know, I know we're going to get really into it, but I've had, like, a lot of mad stuff happen in my life. Uh, and, there's, and there's been some real dark holes I've gotten myself into, um, moments of suicidal thoughts and attempts and stuff like that. And, and, and there's a song that kind of, it came to me in one of those moments. I think it was when I was, it was back, I was back working in the labs and I was so miserable. And I was in a, a function band with a guitarist who was a real bully. And and I, I I had been bullied in school up until transition year, like constant. It was a constant thing in my life up until transition year when I got out of it. And I got in with all the other freaks who are now, let's face it, the cool people. It's just those people didn't realise it at the time, but we're definitely the coolest. And then I found my tribe and then I blossomed transition year. That's when I started playing bass and got into cool music and all this kind of stuff and met all these girls who are 
similar to me and form a first band, all this kind of crack. But there was, it was at, around a time it elapsed when I was so miserable and I felt in a cage, I was claustrophobic. Nobody around me understood me. I've got a weird family dy dynamic with my, you know, I, I couldn't, apart from my dad, it was just so, I just felt very alone and and I, I felt no way out and, and I was having these negative thoughts and you, you go down this horrible spiral, you know, and someone bought me for my birthday or something. They got me a DVD and it was Rush Live at Rio and I watched it and a load of the songs I knew, but this one song came on that I never heard and it was called The Pass and it was one of the most beautiful, profound songs I've ever heard in my life and it was, you know that moment when a song comes into your life and it just... And it comes into your life because it comes into your life for a reason. And it's about a, a young fella who is having like suicidal thoughts. And it's the voice of someone trying to say, don't do it. Like turn around, turn around, walk the razor's edge. Like don't, you know. And and it, even it's, it, it, the lyrics are by the drummer Neil Peart, who was such an amazing lyricist uh, who died a few years ago. Um, but the lyrics are even quoting Oscar Wilde. It's like all of us do time in the gutter. Dreamers learn to stare at the stars. I mean, like, fucking hell, like, I mean, that's profound shit. You know, so, um, all of us do time in the darkness. Dreamers learn to steer by the stars. Turn around, turn around, turn around. Turn around and walk the razor's edge. Don't turn your back and slam the door on me. I mean, heavy stuff, but it was at the right moment and it made, that was the moment when that shift happened in my mind. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Rush, the pass, live at Rio, wonderful. Um, yeah, so when we met the other day, or whatever, I said the other day, it was a month ago, so um, after the Frames gig in Mark's house. Um, yeah, you mentioned to me this uh, four years ago, this other curveball thrown at you, a big one this time, and, uh, and cancer came knocking at the door. Tell me about that journey, and which then brought you this. Well, you're really doing comedy, but brought you to base most of your comedy around, which I'm really fascinated about. Um, because I, I was telling you about the, the the gentleman's name is a young man called Johnny Johnny um, Pelham Pelham. He's a he's a he's a young fella, young comedian that does a lot of um, his jokes uh, and his his routine around the fact he was abused as a child. And it's, it's fascinating to watch. He has one live at the Apollo. It's, it's a really fascinating comedy. Um, and I'd like to hear your story, how, how you integrated, how, how the whole thing developed from your horrible experience. Right. Well, if, if, I'd have to go back a year before that to, to one of the, actually, I'd say the biggest curveball of them all, which is when my dad died. So my dad was like, of all the people around me growing up, he was like the only the only one who kind of really got me, I'd say, and a real champion. And and basically, like I am basically like the little female version of him. <laughs> yeah, and he, everything I am, I owe to that man, you know. And so five years ago, twelfth of June, 
um, he went in for, well, he went a few months previously, went in for a, a hip replacement and things, and he went, he was healthy going in and things just kept going wrong up until ultimately he died on the 12th of June, 2017. And like, it was just like, I just went numb and stoned for ages until it all came screaming back to me. Like, uh, I remember I went back to London then after a funeral and all that crack. And I walked in to my house, to my flat, and there was all this post in the in the hallway. And I saw this postcard and um, looked at the postcard and it was a postcard from my dad uh, that he had, he would have sent. Because Royal Mail shit, you don't get anything for ages, you know, from Ireland. And um, it, it, he obviously must have sent it when he was a bit better weeks previously. And it was just this mad postcard from my dad joking about the cottage on the front and how shit it was or whatever. And and how Drada was buried in London and all this crack and just him just having a laugh with me and and that was the first moment I really broke down and cried about my dad and then I just again went towards that big huge spiral and then six months to the day it was I was beginning to piss off everyone around me because I just couldn't get out of my grief you know and uh, like burst into tears all the time having panic attacks all this kind of crack and until I got to the, it got to the point where you know, my ex, my fella at the time was getting irritated with me. My housemate were like, oh, it's been a couple of months, like you should be over it. And I'm like, well, you've never lost a parent, so fuck off, you know. Anyway, I I, I, felt, I went into the shower to have my cry, you know, because it was the only place I could feel like I could do it because you were just never alone in the flat, you know. So I was having a cry and I was washing myself and it was the 12th of December. It was my dad's six-month anniversary and I was washing myself. And as I was washing down the left side, hand side, I felt this lump on the left side, left side of my boob, and it was like massive and hard, and I felt no pain. I, there was no pain. Like you know, people often ask me, "Oh, when you found out you had cancer, were you feeling sick? Did you have any pain?" There was absolutely none of that. You, you know, I I can't speak for anyone else, but you generally don't. I don't think it's just you just find a lump and that's it, and it's just like a ticking time bomb, you know. And it was huge. It ended up being twenty four diameter, twenty four millimeters in diameter. So like a golf ball, basically. And uh, so I was stage three, so it turns out. Found this lump, had a complete melt. But like, I totally believe in the universe and I totally believe in your emotions and your thoughts and your feelings can bring stuff into your life. Like I, I, I think of all the things that happened to me that I've got proof of it, you know? And that was one too, because when my dad died, I wanted to die, like, I just wanted to die. I just didn't, I wanted it, an easy way out, like, you know, and in a weird, and in a, in a, in a, in a way, I remember I was, I wanted, I wanted something to just fucking get rid of me silently, you know, and not in a horrific, I have to drown or take a load of pills or strangle myself kind of way. I just go peacefully, naturally, you know, cancer, boom, I love that. Like, and the universe says, well, your wish is my command, like, boom, here you go. And I totally, I know people are going to think this is mental, like, but there was no medical history of cancer in my family. I didn't have the genetics for it. There was no one with breast cancer in my family. There was no history. There was no nothing. No genes, no nothing. It was a fluke. The, the kind of breast cancer I had was a, a rarer kind because everyone knows of the ones that happen in women in their 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, the hormonal kind. But mine was a, a rarer kind that can just explode in women who are younger. I was 35 at the time and it was called triple negative breast cancer. And it just came out of nowhere. Like, you know, and everyone was dumbfounded. My mum couldn't believe it, but she was like, you're so healthy. I was vegan at the time, you know, don't smoke, this kind of crack. 
and um, she just couldn't believe it. And, and I knew what it was. I and I knew, and I was like, it's because I wanted it. And then I remember I I found a lump, and it was just before Christmas. I went for the tests. I went for the biopsies and all that crack. But I had to wait till after the Christmas holidays to get my results. So that Christmas it was already a shit time because Christmas was like my dad's favorite time, and it was just crap. But um, so it was my fir first Christmas without dad, without our little thing of going down to Cleason's pub and, and having a crack with him and ended up in a light club even though he was 70 he was a mad fucker like all of that was gone and and also I knew I found my lump I told my brother and my sister and they were like it's our first Christmas night dad don't tell mum." and the first thing you want to do is you want to tell the people closest to you and I wanted to tell my mum like and I could and that even hurt more the fact that I just couldn't say how because this will destroy horror and I'm like well what, what is it doing to me keeping this secret is is is, is hurting me and I want, and I wanted to say it. And actually, it turned out when I eventually did tell her, she did. She was actually cool, but she was actually more upset about me losing my hair than anything. <laughs> but um, which is what I talk about in my comedy as well, because her reaction was just mental, you know. Um, but uh, like she cried about the hair. It was nuts. But <laughs> uh, but like that hurt more. And so I had to keep it as this big secret, secret. And then I came back to to uh, London to get my results. My ex, he was a Belgian guy. He came with me. He was he was he was my boyfriend at the time. He came with me, and the doctor he was just very unceremonious in how in his delivery. He just turned around and says, "Hello, Ellen. Okay, nice Christmas. Yeah, grand. Okay, you have breast cancer." And it was just like, I did I didn't hear anything beyond that. Like he just said it like that. Like it was like you have the flu, have some and then and then go to bed. You know, it, it was it was just like this. And then he just rabbited on about other shit and asking all this stuff like do you plan on having kids because the chemo it's going to be very intense and you'll probably go into early menopause so if we need to freeze your eggs we need to freeze your eggs now it was just all this shit and I was like how am I making all these unbelievably crazy tough life decisions fucking now when he's just said this to me and I, I didn't really hear any of this it was kind of going in one ear out the other and I just uh, I didn't cry or anything I just kind of turned into stone and I just kind of stared at my feet and I just it was like he blurred out, you know, but my ex, Sven, Belgian guy, he just, he's very, you know, very Belgian, you know, they're like, he just was very stoic and just was like, okay, well, what's the plan? He was just, no emotion. He was like, right, what's the plan? And as soon as I heard him say that, I was kind of like, you know what? I don't want to fucking go, actually. No, no, you're right. No, it's not my time. Bollocks to this. What do I have to do? And they were like, you're going to need six to seven months of extreme chemotherapy. You're going to need radiotherapy for a month. You're going to need a few operations. You know, we might not, you might not lose the boob. You might lose the boob, but we'll see how it goes with the chemo. The chemo is to shrink the tumour, blah, blah, blah. And then I was listening. And then I was like, right. And I just, and I didn't go into fight mode. A lot of people are like, oh, you, you fight, you fought off. And I was like, no, I didn't fight. I, uh, fighting is a negative connotation. I, I, uh, I was, I was, my goal was health, I'd say. And also, People were always saying stuff like, oh, you were so brave and all this kind of crap. And I'm like, it's not really, really bravery if you don't have a choice. Bravery is going into something when you have a choice. Like, I chose to do stand-up comedy. That that required a bit of bravery, you know. I chose to get up and talk about how I nearly died and all this kind of shit. And how I've got the menopause. All this kind of crap. But like, and I joke about it. But that that's something I chose to do. But cancer I didn't choose. Like, I mean... I kind of did in I brought it in I, I feel like I brought it in I know I brought it in on myself with the with the law of attraction and all that but like 
and I wanted to die and he gave it to me, but it, it still wasn't an active choice. Like I didn't, you know, sign up, you know, I didn't, it, it, it happened and I just had to deal with it. And my way of dealing with it was like to just focus on health, do everything the doctor told me and do everything else as well. Like, you know, take cannabis oil, eat healthy. I was already eating healthily. Like, you know, do all the things that I needed to do and just listen to the doctor and focus on health and, and good humor and not go down the depressed hole, just focus on the end goal, you know? It's, it's quite a remarkable story. What, I, what I'm interested in is you mentioned earlier about that, that moment of darkness when you were talking about the Rush song. And now there's this big cloak of darkness over you, but you've chosen the other way. So I'm interested. I understand all the eating health and stuff, but where, where was your mind at? Where, you, know, you mentioned, you said, fuck this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get healthy. How, how, what, kind of, what kind of support did you have? Because obviously you did it on your own, but was, was there support around you, apart from Sven or wherever else, your family? What, what was it like? Because before we get to the, the comedy, which you, know, you obviously built the material from that, but including your, your story, your mom being more upset about the hair than anything else. I mean, I know that's a kind of facetious for, for comedy, but it, what, was, what was it like? Who, who, who came to the rescue for wanting a better word? Oh, who did you see, Cash? Um, I had some great, great friends. Like, well, well, Sven was good, but sometimes he wasn't. Housemates were not oh, terribly great, I would say, at the time. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. Um, I, a really great friend in a girl called Natalie. She's an amazing artist in her own right. Natalie Duncan. Check her out. Uh, she's like soul R&B art, uh, singer-songwriter here in London. She was a, a life saver in many ways. I don't get to see her that often, but like I owe her a lot. So I would say Natalie Duncan. Um, my uh, friends in Ireland I had a little WhatsApp group called Tumor Humor where I would like, <laughs> we would make light of everything that was going on and I would let them know. And then putting stuff on Facebook and, and, and your social media and getting feedback from people and, and positive vibes from people that really helps shouting from the rooftop and getting love back that helps yeah no and i'm, I'm curious uh, i was curious more because um you know i'm always very keen on the on the community side of things on how how we you know what you put in it's what you get out and, and so on but but the um just just it was just curious because obviously it's just a hard road but i'm delighted to see that you're you're out of it i it's is it all over is it all over now? You, you obviously have your checks every so often. Yeah, I'm actually due a check next week. Uh, yeah, I'm 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 in remission now. Uh, just over three years, I think. Yeah, right. so two more years, and then you get the all clear. People always think once you get through it, you're all clear. You're not. You're you're in remission, and remission lasts about five years, depending mm. on the kind of cancer you had. So for me, it's five years. So I've got two more years to go, and then you get the all clear. Then you're officially discharged from any checkups and anything. And you never have to mention it again, <laughs> which I will. I will, though, because fuck, it happened to me. It's my life. Yeah. And, and let's talk about the mentioning, because I'm, in, I'm curious of the reaction you get. So you did the stand up comedy. The, the in itself is, is, is scary. We're talking about cur- courage. It must be scary because it's one thing to miss a couple of notes on a bass. But it's one thing to say, tell a joke and nobody laughs or whatever. I don't know. I'm sure they all laugh, but it, I'm sure there's the odd one where, you know, it doesn't land as good as it should. And I know you kind of briefly mentioned to me at the party that 
sometimes people feel, and I wouldn't say maybe offended, but they just don't know how to deal with that kind of humor. And you know, menopause may be slightly easier to, but when you start to talk about, so what kind of reaction do you get? For, if it's a club situation, mostly it's it's great. You're like, and they laugh and all that kind of crack. And uh, because I'm not taking the piss out of cancer, I'm taking the piss out of what it was like for me because it was ridiculous. People were sending me messages saying, "Oh, get off chemo and, and uh, drink loads of kale juice and you'll be grand." And I'm like, "I'm stage three, stage four, and you die." Like, you know what I mean? So, fuck, I'm gonna have the chemo, you know? Or people saying, "Oh, well, you know what really helped me? Esoteric breast massage." I'm like. I need more than a fucking massage, love. You know what I mean? Oh, block you, you know? I'd say I blocked an awful lot of people during that time because there was an awful lot of unsolicited bullshit advice and people need to be careful of that. Like, it's good to have a bit of holistic stuff on the side, but listen to the bloody doctors. They know what they're talking about, you know? Um, so it was, uh, for the most part, it's good because it's, uh, my when I do my stand-up, like I'll send you a video as well. It's more like, a, yeah, I beat it. Like I got through it, but it was like this. You know, and doctors saying this to me and my mother's reaction to me hair and what it's like when, you know, you go to, into early onset menopause and, and then I have a joke song about it and all this kind of stuff. And um, and mostly it's a triumphant thing because it's like I'm, I'm it's past tense and it's my story. But you get the odd EJ who's like, oh, I didn't feel comfortable about you talking about the menopause because you're young. And I'm like, yeah, but this is my story and I'm allowed to talk about my story. I'm not going to take the piss out of the what well, it's menopause in general, or I'm not going to take the piss out of cancer in general because cancer is a horrible thing, you know. It can be a death sentence, it, but it can also not be, you know. But it's definitely a transformative thing for me, you know. And it it it, it kind of eliminated eliminated fear for me in a lot of ways because, like, you can't have fear anymore if you've already gone through like your own mortality, you know what I mean? I just don't care anymore. So I'm like, I'm going to get up and just fucking say it. And if they don't get it, I don't give a shit. <laughs> but for the most part, they do. But you get the odd person who's like, oh, you get the odd bloke who gets a bit squeamish when you're talking about the menopause, you know? Because you know, blokes like, you see male comedians getting up all the time talking about their bollocks for fucking 10 minutes. But I, I say one thing about the menopause and you're like, oh, you know, oh, shut up. You know, it happens to half of us in our lifetime, you know? Or when I talk about the cancer thing, they'll get like, oh, I mean, that's a bit scary. Or I remember one time I was supporting Joe Rooney and this woman came up to Joe and she was like, she was like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't like her jokes about cancer. And Joe got annoyed. His, his own mother died of cancer. Like he, my mom has cancer right now. Like it's not, it's not, I'm not joking about cancer. I'm joking about my journey, you know, and that's my choice and my story to tell. And it's up to me to tell it. And if you don't get it, if you don't understand that, then you can fuck off. And I think comedy is the last bastion of free speech. And I'm going to fucking say it, like, and I don't care. So, but this woman came up and she said this to Joe. And Joe actually got really annoyed with her. Because sometimes there has been the odd moment where I'm like, oh, Joe, should I not just do more generic, you know, Irish girl living in London jokes? Or, you know, I've got all these other jokes. Jokes come to me all the time. I have fucking notes in my phone of voice notes and just, every, it comes all the time when I'm talking to people. I say something stupid, silly and oh, I'll write that down. But with this, I like, I sell it all to Joe and he and he actually feels real strongly about it and, and his, him feeling strong on my behalf made me feel strong about it and I was like you're right he got thick with this woman he says well my mother died of it because she was like my auntie died of it and I don't like her jokes about it and he was like well my mother died of it and I fucking love her jokes and if you don't and she's not talking about she's not talking about your auntie she's not talking about my mom she's talking about her journey so fuck off he actually did that for me and I was like legend thanks so much man you know so now it's like 
no, fuck off. I'm going to speak my truth, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And fair play to you for, for it. When I was um, looking and researching this guy, Johnny Pelham, uh, I started to come across all these things about being cancelled, you know, all these things that just, all these words that we're using now, being cancelled, et cetera, et cetera, because we don't feel comfortable with things. But we won't go down that route because uh, it just ruins our, our Friday afternoon. So <laughs> tell me about your last song uh, before uh, I'll ask you one more thing and then we'll let you go back to, to practice, you know, whatever you're doing this afternoon. Okay, my last song is In My Life by The Beatles. But I'm choosing the Dave Matthews version because it's like the Beatles were my dad's favorite band. This song was played at my dad's funeral, and always, and it's it's like it's my song that makes me think of him. But the Dave Matthews version, or well, I love Dave Matthews, but it's so beautiful because it's stripped back. It's just him and an acoustic guitar and a bit of piano for the solo bit. But it, Dave's incredibly beautiful, weird voice, and then just guitar, and it's and it, when you strip a Beatles song down to its bare bones, you realise the genius of them. You know, all of them. Like, incredible. In My Life by the Beatles. It, and it's and that version is just... I, I, I can't hear it and not burst into tears. There are places I remember All my life Though some have changed Some forever Not for better Some have gone And some remain All these places Have their moments Wonderful. Thanks a million. So as we're coming towards the end, uh, let's say uh, look at the future. Right? You have this wonderful future ahead of you. Ahead of you. Let's say uh, let's have a think about if you were to get a phone call this afternoon from a band, say, look, Ellen, we need you. We need a bass player. Our bass player broke his finger or her finger. Who would it be? Who would you love to get a phone call from? And just we're going to go on tour for about six months. Queen. Uh, the thing is, I know Queen's bass player now, Neil Fairclough. I know him, like, so I'm just waiting. I'm, we're friends and all, and I'm waiting for him to break a finger and call me. <laughs> Queen, yeah, that'd be fantastic. That'd be fantastic. Would you be, tell me, on that, it's interesting, though, because would you, you get that phone call this afternoon, they say, Rook, you need to be ready in about two weeks. How quickly can you get up to speed to, to all the songs? As a, as a oh, well, prof- no problem. Really? Yeah. I, oh, I just like. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm a quick learner. Like, I'll just bury myself in whatever session or whatever gig or whatever comes my way, like, or or musical or whatever the hell I'm doing. I'll just bury myself in the music. I'll just go into my little home studio in Ireland or my little setup here when I'm in London. I'm, I'm in two places at once. It's weird. Um, and I'll just bury myself in the music and I'll just. I figure it all out by ear and I just practice, practice, practice. And because I'm a singer as well, I, a lot of times I'll be learning lyrics and, and learning the backing vocals as well and all that kind of crack. So I just sack off everything else and I bury myself in the music for a few days and then and I put it all in my head. And that's how to, like, even in this musical theatre show I'm working in now, Operation Mince Me, um, the music's really complex. Like, we're, we're jumping from jazz to, like, bebop to, to techno. Like, I'm on synth-based keys as well, play a bit of that as well. All this different stuff. It, it, it runs to so many different kinds of music and different styles and techniques. Um, but I don't read it like, and people are always amazed because like the other musicians in the band, they they've got their notation and they're reading stuff. Like even after years of doing it, and I'm like, no, I I just learned it all off by heart, and then it's all in my head. So the whole show is in my head, which is to the 
astonishment of a few other musicians but like that's just how I work like I just get it all in my head get it all in my fingers and then don't think about it wonderful and this show you're working on you say you're you're co-writing are you co-writing the show or the music for the show so the other thing I'm doing is right so Operation Mince Me I'm just I'm just I'm the pit player for that so I'm uh, in the wings playing bass for that I'm not a writer or anything anything like that and we've been we're being run by Avalon Comedy big big comedy competition thing um now this other thing I'm doing like it's kind of based it kind of came out of Covid because it's based on all the stuff I talk about in my stand-up comedy which is it's storytelling and it's all about that journey from when I had cancer and then you know all the stuff that happened there loads of more stuff I've got too much stuff that came out of that um so I kept thinking about it and I was doing counseling online because COVID was real was a real hard hit for me because I loved to perform and I wasn't performing at all. I had no income, it was awful. So um I I got kind of inspired by a friend I was going sea swimming with. She was like, You should write a book and the counsellor I was doing this online counselling with, she was like, Well, there's a sitcom in you girl, you know? Because you're you're telling this mad serious story, but it's kind of funny. So I kind of had this idea and I but I kept bumping into this friend of mine. This is again serendipity in the universe, a friend of mine, uh, Frank W. Kelly, I mentioned. He's a filmmaker and a writer. Kept bumping into him after he moved back to Ireland after living in America for a while. And uh, I was like, come on, can we go, go grab a cup of tea and I'll tell you my plan. So I was like, fuck it. I've got an idea for a TV show, a dark comedy. And I'm going to, it's based on that period of my life. And I'm going to, and my discovery at the end of, stand-up comedy because it's like a, a release of all the tension of all that comes out in comedy you know and um, because it's the best way of getting taking the fright out of a scary thing is to laugh at it you know it's like that scene in harry potter when the bug the bucket comes out and it's a scary spider put them on boot skates it's hilarious no longer scary and that's how i dealt with when i had cancer and then after cancer because you kind of go mental after it like you know you, you just lose your mind a bit you know it's ptsd kind of thing so um, he, uh, we went for tea and I told him my plan and he was like, yeah, I'm on board. So then we were writing a, a six part, half hour series, dark comedy series called The Life O'Reilly, as in The Life of Riley, you know, and it's based on all of this journey. Now we've got the pilot written and that's floating about. We're trying to get that out into the world. Um, and we've got the kind of arc for the rest of the series, but, uh, just try and put it out there. I mean, you know, we've we've no representation. We're just putting it out into the universe and see what happens. But in the meantime, I was inspired by uh, Fleabag writer uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. What she's done is she did a one-woman theatre show of it. She did it, took it to the fringe and all this. And then that gave us another idea. So right now, me and Frank are writing on, we're doing over Zoom when I'm, when I'm in London. And when I'm home in Ireland, we meet up in the Dread Arts Centre. And we kind of work it out and workshop it and write it all out. So we're working on a theatre show now, a one-woman theatre show. I'm going to have to act now. All of a sudden now I'm an actress. You know what I mean? I mean, what the fuck? A thespian. I never used to know what a thespian was. I used to just think it was a lesbian with a lisp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, that's, fantastic. that's fantastic. That's so fantastic. Yeah, so we're working on this. Now we're working on The Life of O'Reilly, the one-woman show. We're going to do a, a an hour condensed version for the Fringe that we hope to take to next year's Ed Fringe, I hope. Do a few work-in-progress whip shows around Ireland and pro probably London. And then we'll probably... But right now we've kind of worked out a longer two-hour version, Act 1, Act 2, but it takes us through this journey. So that's what we're working on at the minute. Um, so we'll 
but it'll be a comedy but it'll be a dark comedy like it's it's tough mm. subjects and it's tough subjects that was my life really <laughs> wow that's uh, fantastic I, I knew the moment i met you for that brief uh, whatever we were drinking i don't know a beer i don't know what we were drinking at marks outside i, I knew there was um there was a lot, a lot uh, about you that would really be of interest to a lot of people. So I'm absolutely delighted that you gave me this time to, to, to tell us about. And um, the last thing I'd like to ask you: what, what should I read tonight? What, what book should I read tonight? What would you recommend? Anything uh, at all? It was hard to choose because I was going to say, "Oh, Sapiens," because it's really interesting, or "Fellowship of the Ring," and all that. But then I was like. <laughs> I was like, because what kind of book? So I will go with Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. <laughs> I like that, yeah. I haven't read it yet. I have it in my list. Um, it's self-help with a difference. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ellen, look, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I just look forward to see all these things. And um the, the show been shown around Ireland and uh, and the band the, the Disco Volante can't wait to hear the first uh, album coming out and are you getting Ross to sing a little bit or just you singing he's just on the guitar he's on the guitar there's no chance he's not he's not getting near but near the mic <laughs> <laughs> well listen Ross, I love you <laughs> <laughs> listen it's been an absolute pressure and thanks a million for sharing the, the story with me really appreciate it no problem. Thanks, Landry. But if I meet you somewhere far down the line, the sun still shines in your hair. I kiss you once, then I'll Yeah, if I meet you someplace far down the line, the sun still shines in your face. I'll kiss you once, then I'll see.